Well, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians chapter 16, we're beginning this last chapter. I looked back and saw when I first preached um, and started uh, the book of First Corinthians. It was 2018. I can't believe how long we've been here. We've had many stops and starts. We've gone through a pandemic and all that one. We're in the midst of it all. So, so there's been a lot of breaks along the way. But 2018 was when we started and we're, and we're coming in now to this last chapter, chapter 16. So let's read together. The first four verses, and then we'll pray and begin. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Let's pray. Father, we open your word to hear from you. This is not a dead book. It's living and active. And through it, we believe that you speak to your people. And that's what we long to have ears to hear is your voice. So speak to us, I pray. And do so in such a way that you draw us closer to Christ and make us more like Christ at the same time. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Now, there's a lot of things that we come to expect when we get a meal at Chick-fil-A. Now, speaking for my family, we expect a juicy, tasty chicken sandwich, some yummy waffle fries, lots of Chick-fil-A sauce. But beyond the food... There are other things that are just as expected that reflect the culture of this fast food restaurant that is currently, by the way, third overall in total sales just behind Starbucks and then McDonald's. Now, the first distinctive that that feature about Chick-fil-A that comes to my mind is the one that both pleases and frustrates Christians, American Christians probably in particular, throughout the country. And the fact that I'm mentioning Chick-fil-A so close to lunch is likely making some of you think like, hey, let's go there after church today. And of course, you you remember just a few minutes later, like, they're closed on Sundays. We can't can't go there. The founder of Chick-fil-A, whose name is Truett Cathy, he made this point, the final step in his five-step recipe for business success, saying, and this is quoting Kathy, I was not so committed to financial success that I was willing to abandon my principles and priorities. One of the most visible examples of this is our decision to close on Sunday. Our decision to close on Sunday was our way of honoring God and of directing our attention to things that mattered more than our business. And, and by the way, their Sunday closures extend to all of their other locations, whether they be in shopping malls or airports or even their spot in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. And, and by the way, most of the Atlanta Falcons home games are played on a Sunday and they're not open. 
And that includes even when they remain closed for Super Bowl 53, which was played at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in 2019. So good for them. But there's another distinctive that comes to my mind, and that's the response that employees give to customers when you say thank you to them. Right? When you say thank you, they respond with, not you're welcome. Who said you're welcome? You've never been to Chick-fil-A. They say, my pleasure. My pleasure. And this also came down from the chain's founder. He got the idea when he was staying one time at the Ritz-Carlton. And when he said thank you to a hotel employee, the employee replied, my pleasure. And Kathy thought that those just those two small word, words, they made the Ritz-Carlton separate, distinct from all the other luxury establishments. And so he wanted to bring that same feel back to his own restaurants. And then, of course, the rest is history. Interesting note is that there's nothing in the official employee training for new Chick-fil-A employees that says they have to say, my pleasure. It's just become a part of the company culture, and it reflects, which is their to use elevated language. So, okay, so now that I've tortured you with thoughts of Chick-fil-A on the one day of the week when you can't get it, let me explain my reason for bringing up this subject. See, all of these things, right, the food, they're being closed on Sundays, the response of my pleasure, these are all things that regular customers of Chick-fil-A have come to expect. It would probably make national news story if a Chick-fil-A restaurant were serving member uh, customers on a Sunday like they do Monday through Saturday. It would go national if that happened. Now, come to, just so you know, there were five occasions where Chick-fil-A restaurants did serve on a Sunday, but they were all in response to basically disasters or events of some kind where employees came in and volunteered their time and just served the, the community. Right, So they weren't officially open, but they were serving on a Sunday. But if that happened, if you, went, if you drove by a Sunday and there's a line of people out front, you'd be like, what's going on? This is Chick-fil-A. Or if you maybe had your, your camera going on your phone when, when you say thank you to a customer and they, and they respond with, you betcha, or sure thing, or whatever, you, know, then that, you would post that video and it would go viral. Because everybody expects certain things from Chick-fil-A. These are distinctives by which Chick-fil-A is known, so much so that any one of them missing would make you wonder, what's wrong? There's something wrong here. Have I, have I wandered into some counterfeit Chick-fil-A store or something like that, that that isn't the real place? Now, in a similar way, there are certain distinctives that are true of every Christian who's been born again by the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says there, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And the Bible speaks in many places about what those distinctive, these new things, what they consist of. The book of 1 John, though, has many of them. It's a great book because it puts forward so many tests of your Christian faith. So many marks of the true Christian are laid out for us there in the book of 1 John. I'm talking about things like 1 
pursuing an obedient life. Practicing righteousness. Having an increasing sensitivity in your life to sin. A genuine love for other believers. A a disdain for all that opposes God's will in the world. Perseverance in faith. There's there's several others, others that we could list. These are... These are all the product of the sanctifying work of the Spirit as He he works in you, gradually conforms your nature to be like Christ's. Now, no two believers are alike, right? The Spirit may work differently in each one of us and in different ways and at different pace and so forth in, in conforming us to Christ, but He's always at work and He's working towards the same goal. That means that He's not going to overlook some sinful area of your life and just let that one slide. No, and you know what? And you don't want Him to either if you're, if you're a born-again believer of Christ. You hate your sin. Why? Because it dishonors Christ. You hate your selfishness. Why? Because Christ was so selfless towards you. You hate your pride because Christ went so low to save you. You love righteousness because Christ died to take away your sin. You forgive others because Christ forgave you and He forgave you far more than you will ever have to forgive someone else. See, this is all the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. And so when you encounter a professing Christian who is selfish, or unloving towards other believers, or who takes their sin very lightly, refuses to repent of their sin, it should shock you. It should make you wonder, wait, what's wrong? These important things, they are missing. And if such things are significant enough, if they're consistently lacking enough, despite the profession... It should make you even wonder if that person is truly saved. Is, is the Spirit of God really at work in you? I know you say He is, but I don't see much fruit of that. Are they a counterfeit believer who's only really just deceiving themselves? Now I want you to listen again as I read through just the first two verses of our text here. Because I want you to see if you can detect the expectation that Paul has of the believers in the Corinthian church. He listed along. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Did you you pick up the expectation that Paul has of them simply because they are Christians? See, in addition to the the characteristics that I've already, already mentioned, you can add here that all Christians will learn how to give. All Christians will learn how to give. Here's a case where Paul mentions a need. It's a need amongst a group of believers. Specifically, they are believers in Judea. And we'll talk about more, about more about that in just a minute here. But 
Paul simply takes up the issue. Do you see how matter-of-factly he takes it up? You're to set aside money on a weekly basis as the Lord has prospered them. Can Can you see that he's not using pressure tactics? He's not using any gimmicks. He's not using any forms of emotional manipulation. There is just a need that has to be met. And Paul simply lays out how the Corinthians can play a role in meeting that need. And Paul can do this because he knows that the desire to give is something that God's Spirit places in every believer. See, when Christ redeems a people, He redeems them from materialism. He redeems them from covetousness and selfishness and greed. He says in, in Colossians 3.5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. These are the things He redeems you from. The desire to to freely give. It's because you know that you have freely received. And this arises from the new nature that the Spirit of God has created in you. This is part of the new things that Paul says has come into your life. The old things, the immorality, the greed, the covetousness, that's passed away. doesn't mean it's totally gone. We'll talk about that in a second. The desire to give now is there. You've been made a child of God. And so you desire to be generous like your heavenly Father who didn't spare His one and only Son. But out of love He gave Him so that you might be saved. And it's that desire that compels you to give. See, giving is something that you desire to do, but it is also something that you must learn how to do. And by learn, I mean you must learn how to to deny those selfish impulses that are still present in you to prefer others over yourself instead. The selfish desires to prefer yourself over others, they're still there. But those desires, they have been dethroned by a more dominant desire to consider others as more important than yourself. Just as Christ preferred you. Selfishness and greed, those heart desires, they're still right there. They'll still tempt you like like they have always. But Christ has changed your heart. He's he's broken those bonds of covetousness that, that used to make looking out for number one your top priority. You know, if you did give to others, it was because you got something for it. You felt better about yourself. You liked how it made you look generous to other people. You you didn't need it anyway, so you're fine to give it away. Or some other self-serving motivation, but but no longer. You no longer need to be cajoled or manipulated because money is no longer your idol. It's been torn down. It's been replaced by a relationship with the one true God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Him that you've come to see that you have, as Paul says in Ephesians, unfathomable riches. 
You have the riches of His glory. You have the riches of His wisdom and knowledge. You have the riches of His grace. And God has allowed you to see that true riches, they are not comprised of material things. You no longer fix your hope on what the Bible calls the uncertainty of riches. But instead, your hope is on God who supplies us with all things to enjoy. You're now free to heed the Bible's instruction to, quote, do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for yourselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed, he says. See, the author, the giver of life, he's telling you how to experience life in its truest and fullest sense. He says, do good. Be generous. Share what you have with others. That is life indeed, he says. You know, all the financial experts, they're going to tell you how much you need to save and invest so that you can have plenty to retire on and live, you know, happy in your golden years. It's not the money that is the problem. Right? It's fine to prepare and it's fine to set aside. There's nothing wrong with that. Money is not the problem. It's the love of it. It's the trusting in it. It's the thinking that having it provides you with security. That is the problem. And that's when you've elevated it to an idol. You're looking to it to give to you what God says He gives. Friends, the Bible warns you, do not put your hope in riches. Those riches, the Bible says, they're unreliable. They're a shaky foundation upon which to build your life and your future. God warns that he who trusts in riches will fall. Jesus warned about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever wondered why that is? Because they've got another God right there telling them, put your trust here. This is more important than that God. This God is more important. You can trust this God more than this God. Jesus also said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. He couldn't be any clearer. You cannot serve God and wealth. Don't allow yourself to think that you're going to be the exception. Everyone thinks that they can win the lottery and they won't end up wasting their life away like every other news story. I'll be the exception. No, you won't be. Jesus said no one, and that includes you. Instead, Jesus tells you to be on your guard against wealth. What? I I want wealth. No, you don't. You want greater trust in God who will provide for your needs. Wealth is neither here nor there. You need to be on your guard against what wealth will do with your heart. It will lead you to trust in wealth and not in God. He says, watch out, Jesus said. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So it's a new year. 
Are you seeking ways to honor the Lord in your life? Do you desire that your life consistently be one of worship unto the Lord? Well, one of the areas of your life where you can be doing this is with your finances. So from our passage, I've I've been praying that each of us, myself included, will come to see that giving is one of the ways that you honor and worship the one who gave himself for you. Giving is one of the ways that you honor and worship the one who gave himself for you. And the title of the message this morning is Christ Honoring Gospel-Motivated Giving. Christ-honoring, gospel-motivated giving. And I pray that God will use it to further conform our minds and hearts to view money as a tool to be used for Christ's purposes, not just your own. And this passage is going to challenge each one of us to give in three ways. Give to bring honor to Christ. Give as a steward of God. And give as an act of worship to God. So, Paul is coming off here. The triumphant words that, that brought chapter 15 to a close. And, and just the way in which it happens, if, if Paul were speaking this to us, I imagine that he would be a bit breathless as he concludes the last essential matters that he needed to bring up as a result of, of the report he'd received and then the letter that they had sent to him. He's responding to all these things. And so... He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. (sighs) Now, okay, concerning the collection of the saints. He's he's shifting his topic over. And this is most likely another matter that has been brought up to him in a letter that they sent to him. They had written for further instructions, it seems, as to their part in the collection of for the poor saints who were in the Judea area, in the Jerusalem church. Specifically, they wanted to know how they're supposed to go about this collection and how those collected funds were going to then get to the saints in Jerusalem. And so none of that is really touched on here, and that's why I'm going to explain a little bit more about it in just a second. So Paul responds here, as we see, at the beginning of 16, by, by giving them the same instruction he says I've given to other churches. Now, concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, that's plural, there's many churches there, so do you also. So I'm not giving you any different instructions than I've given to them. But first, let's, let's just make sure we understand what this collection for the saints is all about. So Paul writes about this same collection um, in his letter to the Romans. He also writes about it and refers to it in the next letter that he writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And so, let's, to see more detail about it, turn to Romans 15. And let's just look briefly at what he says there. Romans 15. Look at 25. He says, Romans 15, verse 25, he says, But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
Okay, so the motivation for for Paul's desire to collect these funds for, he calls them the poor, amongst the saints who are in Jerusalem, that likely goes back to the council that Paul attended that was in Jerusalem that's detailed in, in the book of Acts in chapter 15 where it was regarding God's saving work amongst the Gentiles. And it's in the book of Galatians where Paul mentions that while he was there in Jerusalem, James and Cephas and John... So remember, he was there to talk about how the gospel is being um, received by the Gentiles. And that was causing a bit of a stir uh, because it was, well, how are they supposed to respond and so forth. So we won't get into all of that. But that was the nature of the council. But at the conclusion of this council, it was, it was as I said, James and Cephas, which is Peter, and John... And they urged Paul that in his ministry, because he had a ministry that was to the Gentiles. That's where all these churches in Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, and so forth. That's where these churches were founded. This is amongst the, the Gentiles. And he's out there first going into the synagogue. And then once they get tired of Paul there, then he starts preaching to the Gentiles. And people start coming to faith in Christ. And these churches are being established. And so they want to talk to Paul about this and... What's the response going to be? But at the end of that, they tell Paul that in his ministry to the Gentiles, they want him to remember the poor. And Paul then says, well, that's the very thing I was eager to do. Right. So you're not telling me anything I don't want to do. I want to remember the poor in the midst of this ministry. So we can only speculate as to how the church in Jerusalem became poor. Because right? we're not really told this is how it happened. This is why there are poor saints in Jerusalem. Acts mentions, though, two factors that might have contributed to the neediness in the church in Jerusalem. First, we have the account in Acts chapter 6, where the church was reaching, apparently, large numbers of widows. These are women whose husbands have died and they're somewhat destitute. And the church is taking them in. They're providing for their needs. So much so that they had, that was where the idea of deacons first arose. We need to raise up godly men who will look out for these needs. Because those who were the apostles were like, we can't focus on serving tables and so forth. And so that was where the idea of deacons first came about. So, so significant was the number of widows being reached that this ministry arose. And perhaps it was taking its toll financially as well upon the church. And there were a number of poor widows in the church being provided for, but it was difficult. Um, but there's another thing that's mentioned in Acts chapter 11. There, a prophet by the name of Agabus, he prophesied by the Spirit that there would be a great famine in all the world. A great famine all over the world, he says. So Paul, at that time that Agabus made this, prophecy was in Antioch. And Luke tells us that the disciples there, they took up a collection and then they sent Barnabas and Paul to give the funds to the church in Jerusalem, help bring relief to the suffering Christians in Judea. So Paul was already responding. He was already responding to these needs as this famine perhaps was setting in and creating poverty, especially amongst the believers in Judea. So with all of that in mind here, whether these conditions were still the cause of, 
of, of suffering of Christians in Jerusalem. You know, we can't be sure. Those are just some things that we're aware of historically that the Bible mentions that might have created these conditions. Here's what we do know. That this was something the Corinthians here in chapter 16, they already knew about. They didn't need any of these details. They needed no explanation. Paul just simply responds. They wrote to him apparently and said something like, okay, so about the the need in Jerusalem, how are we supposed to go about this? And this is Paul's answer. That's why it's, it's not mentioned. That's why I provide you this detail so you can see the big picture here. But the... But the details don't really matter. And that's, that's what I want you to see. They were the ones who Paul wrote with questions about how to participate. And Paul's response, though, is just so matter of fact. Here's how you go about it. And this leads us to the first way that God wants to challenge us in our giving. And that is to give to bring honor to Christ. Give to bring honor to Christ. And Paul identifies the collection to be taken up. He says it's for the saints. And when we hear that term saints, our thoughts might think that it's referring to someone who is exceptionally good or holy. They're a saint. In the Roman Catholic Church, saints are persons in heaven who are identified as having lived a life of, quote, heroic virtue. But in the Bible, a saint is another way of referring to someone who's not in heaven, but on earth, who has received Jesus Christ by faith. The Greek word for saint, hagios, it, it simply means consecrated to God, holy, sacred, pious. And so it refers to a person. It could refer to a group of people if it's in the plural. Saints. It's people who are redeemed by God. Who are set apart for the Lord and for His kingdom. So in that sense, all Christians are considered saints. It's not some special category of Christian. It's all Christians can be referred to as saints. And that's what Paul is doing here. A collection for the saints, the Christians that are in Jerusalem. All Christians are to be considered saints. All Christians are saints. All Christians are to be saints. They're called to increasingly allow their daily life to reflect who they are in Christ. And so Paul refers to the believers in Judea here. He calls them saints. But you know what? Look back at chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Look at what he calls the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You call on the name of the Lord. If you're set apart for His purposes in the world. Saint. You're to be a saint. You're to act like a saint. Someone set apart for God's purposes. And so Paul's instructions here are how to give towards the needs of the poor Christians in Judea. But in this term, saints, that he calls them saints. And when we add to it the historical circumstances that I've described to you that we 
that brought about this need for this collection. I want to give, I want to highlight three ways to bring honor to Christ in your giving. The first way to bring honor to Christ through your giving is to prioritize advancing God's work. You prioritize advancing God's work in the world. See, the saints are the people of God. They're God's people in the world, and they're the people who, through whom God does His work to advance His kingdom and His purposes in the world. <clears throat> God works through all kinds of means. Not just, not just those who are His people. He works through all kinds of means. We see examples of this in Scripture. God worked through the evil of Joseph's brothers. God called the wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar, who besieged Jerusalem in 605. He called him his servant. Why? Because through this wicked king, God brought judgment upon this backslidden nation that refused to repent. God also spoke through a donkey. Right? So because there is... No one who is not under God's authority, he can use whomever he so chooses. Now, while that's true, God primarily works through the saints. Those whom God has set apart from this world to be used for his purposes in the world. And so this term saints emphasizes ownership. Right? They've been redeemed by Christ. They've been purchased by him with his own blood. And therefore, they belong to God. God chiefly works in and through the saints. And so Paul is not simply instructing them to, to give to some people in Jerusalem who happen to be in need. He's specifically calling on them to help God's people. And those specifically set apart by God for His purposes to do His work in the world. See, this is the desire of the Christian. Like Paul said, I already desired to remember the poor. And this is the desire that he puts in the Christian. You desire to help those who are in need. You know your own salvation is a result of God working through someone else. It might be an individual. It might have been a ministry. It might have been a combination. But it was ultimately God's work. You might have a certain ministry or missionaries that you support on your own. The main way that that you help advance God's work in the world is through giving faithfully to your local church. I'm going to cover that topic more next week. But for now, know that you honor God when you make it your priority to use your resources to advance God's work in the world, which is done through God's set-apart people in the world, through His saints. And so when you are supporting the saints and helping the saints, you are doing so to God. Now, another way that you honor God through your giving is when you provide for help for God's people. First, you prioritize God's work. And then you provide help for God's people. That's the other way that you honor God through your giving. Now, as I've already mentioned, Paul, he doesn't go into the detail here about what the need actually is. The nature and the degree of the need, it was part of previous communication. But I think it's safe to assume that the need was significant. Right? The saints in Judea were in great need. And so it's easy for us to think that, that since there was a need, well, it's only obvious that Christians should step in and help. That certainly honors God when you do good in this way. But I want to bring out some details. I want to show really what makes 
this so significant that such actions would be done at such a time and in such a culture as the Greco-Roman culture in which the Corinthians, the Corinthian church existed. See, generally speaking, in that society, in the society of the, of the Corinthian church, charity towards strangers was not seen as something that was virtuous or, or something that the, that the gods would reward you for doing. So giving to others, it was the way to display to others one's personal virtue and their social power, not their compassion. In the Roman way of thinking, honor and prestige, it derived from the power to give to others what they needed or wanted. Such thinking, it came from great pagan thinkers like Aristotle. This is what he said. He said, quote, honor is the due reward for virtue and beneficence. Plutarch, he said, quote, rulers should show philanthropy to their friends and the friends should shower them with love and honor. In other words, the motivation at that time and in that culture to show charity to someone else was to get others to praise you. That was the motivation. It was to get others to praise you. You gave to get. You gave to those who could give you something in return. In some cases, that was simply repayment. I'll give to you, sure, because you'll repay me back. But in most cases, it was through the showing of honor and being lauded publicly. That's how you repaid. You repaid by, by telling everybody how, how wonderful they were. And that's why people gave. And so you can see that the mindset of the average Corinthian believer would believe that it is most blessed, it's most blessed to receive honor from others. And that's what motivated charitable giving. That was the culture in which these believers in Corinth were raised and how they were, how they were conditioned to think. You give to get. But this is not what we see coming from the Apostle Paul. In total contrast to the culture, Paul simply expects the Corinthians to do good works for people, people that they have never met, probably will never meet. These are saints in Judea, and they can't repay them. They can't honor them or laud them publicly in Corinth because they're in Judea and they're too poor to get over to Corinth to do anything about it. And so the praise and the honor from these poor believers, it's not going to go to them. Where's it going to go? It's going to go to God. The praise is going to go to God. Now, Paul says nothing of that here in this text. He doesn't mention how their generosity is going to bring praise to God, how it's going to be a reward to them, how, it, how the saints are going to give thanks to God for them. He doesn't mention it here in Corinthians but Paul does speak about these things in greater detail in 2 Corinthians. Right? Turn to, turn to chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, just a few pages over. He talks about the churches there at the beginning of chapter 8. The churches of Macedonia and how 
He says, even in the, in the great ordeal of affliction, they begged for the opportunity to participate in supporting the saints. And so Paul, he urges now the Corinthians, he says, I want you guys to do the same. Look at verse 7. He says, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command. Right? He's not going to lord it over. I'm not going to make you give. But as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that you, so that you through His poverty might become rich. Look at chapter 9. It's a, a big chunk, but really it just flows right into this. I want to read from 6 down to the end. Just follow along. Chapter 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good need. deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, He'll supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. See, through the Corinthians' willingness to help and to be liberal in their giving, Paul is saying these believers whom they have never met, they probably never will meet, it, they're overflowed in them this giving of thanks to God. Paul says they will glorify God because such giving, it only comes about as a result of the Gospel of Christ changing their heart. But he says there's something else that's produced in the heart too. He says there's something else. There's a yearning. There's a longing for you, he says, because of the surpassing grace of God in you. You giving to me shows me the grace of God in your life and it makes me long for you and yearn for you. Such giving in time of need, it causes them to rejoice in God for His grace. But it also knits the hearts of believers to each other because one gives, the other receives, but all of it is, is, it is a result of the abounding and surpassing grace of God who so loved the world that He gave. And He gave the indescribably wonderful gift of His Son to save and to forgive and to bless undeserving, wrath-deserving rebels. That's us. And so this leads us into the third way that you bring honor to God in your giving. When by your giving you show that it is your priority to advance God's work 
and provide help for God's people, here's what it's going to do. Thirdly, your giving is going to promote unity in God's church. That's how you honor God through your giving. You promote unity in God's church. See, for Paul, this collection is far more than just a relief offering for the poor saints in Judea. As Paul mentions in Galatians, the apostles in the church in Jerusalem, they'd asked him to remember the poor, right? He says, I'm eager to do that. So we need to remember that at this early stage in the church, one of the difficult barriers for the gospel was the division between Jew and Gentile. And Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, it wasn't looked favorably upon by many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. See, the whole issue that is addressed in the book of Galatians, it was essentially because the Gentile Christians, they, the Jews were saying, you need to become a Jew first, then you become a Christian. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's not the case. You're, ju- you're justified by faith in God, not by works of the law. And then in Ephesians 3, Paul speaks about how God revealed to him what he refers to in there. He calls it the mystery of Christ. This is what it is. Which He says, in other generations, this was not made known to the sons of men. So prior to Christ, prior to the gospel, others didn't understand this. What's this mystery? To be specific, he says, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then he says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. He says, that's what I'm out here doing. I'm telling Gentiles that they are received by Christ, but I also need the Jews to believe that you Gentiles are received by Christ. We don't, we don't feel that way now, but back then this was a big deal. If this didn't happen, you would have had a Jewish church and you would have had a Gentile church. And God said, no, that's not going to be my church We're going to bring the church together under one banner, the banner of Jesus Christ. And so, to Paul, God gave this ministry, this challenging ministry of showing the Jews and the Gentiles that you're one in Christ. And then, God, by His providence, by His providence, He allows the saints in Judea, which consist of primarily Jewish Christians, He allows them to become impoverished. Can you see how Paul now would see this as a divine appointment. God has allowed the Jewish Christians in Judea being ministered to by the church in Jerusalem to be impoverished. Oh, Gentile churches, don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss this opportunity. You need to be a part of showing love to your fellow believers in Christ who are of a different ethnic background than you. Because that should not get in the way of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity transcends ethnic barriers. And Paul can see that if the Gentile churches will take this opportunity and they'll give generously to help meet the needs of their Jewish brethren in Judea, it's going to go a long way towards cementing the bond between the Gentile and the Jewish Christian communities. Now, in Paul's reference to this collection in in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 8, verse 4, this is, I want you to, this is where this is going. He uses a term to refer to this giving, and it's the term koinonia. What's that? You know what that word is? Fellowship. He uses the word for fellowship to describe this giving. The New King James, I think, brings this out in its translation. He says, the church in Macedonia 
implored Paul, he says, with much urgency that we would receive the gift that they're giving to Paul. Please receive this gift. And he says, and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. There is a fellowship in giving that is created. He uses other words to describe this giving. Words like service, grace, blessing, divine service. See, when you put all of this together, you see that for Paul, this was not just some mere matter of money. This was an active response to the grace of God that not only ministered to the needs of the Lord's people, but it also became a kind of ministry to God as well, which resulted in a bond of fellowship between the Lord's people and the the, the churches across the Roman Empire. This is also a reason why Paul wants to send a delegation. He's going to say, I want you to collect this. And you notice back in, in 1 Corinthians, he says... In verse 3, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Why would he want a group of of Christians taking this gift to the believers in Jerusalem? He wants it delivered personally. He wants there to be hands and feet and bodies behind this gift. This is not just some donation, a check that shows up. There are people behind this. And they're believers in Christ. And they're not Jews. He wants this bond of fellowship between the Lord's people to be grown. The object of their giving is God's people because they represent God's name and they accomplish God's work in the world. Showing Christ-like love through our giving, it bonds believers together. It strengthens unity. To give of what you have or to receive what someone else has, it strengthens the bonds that people uh, uh, for people together in such, to such a degree, he says it creates a fellowship amongst people. It's a communion between them. Is there someone that you think doesn't like you? Are you convinced? Is there someone who's convinced themselves that you don't love them? You want to know what God's way is for you to build and restore that relationship and to create a fellowship? You give. You find a way to give to them. You look for opportunities to give towards needs they have. Paul says even further, let's look lastly here at Galatians 6. Turn to Galatians 6. There's people who don't like me, God. There's people who think I don't like them. What can I do about it? Galatians 6, 9. He says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, this is how friendships and relationships are built and restored and strengthened. Right? Remember the unrighteous steward that Jesus spoke about in Luke 16 as a parable. Right? He, he did things that were unrighteous. But then Jesus commended him for one thing. He used money to build friendships. And he said, Christians, you need to do the same. Take what you have and give it to others for the sake of building relationships and friendships with them. You won't regret that, he says. The point is that you should be making friends. You should be building relationships with people through helping them with your money that specific. 
your substance. Nobody likes to be in need, right? We always want to be the ones in abundance. But consider how Christ causes some to be in need at some point in time and others to have an abundance at at some point in time. It's for this very purpose of building relationship and strengthening unity in His church. You may think, I don't like being in need. But do you like to see God glorified through the unity of the church? Because that can happen because of your need where others come and get it. And you respond to that. You give thanks to God that sees you in your need and you have a, a, a growing love and affection for this brother or sister in Christ who saw your need by God's grace and helped you in it. So you're either going to be receiving or you're going to be giving. May it promote the unity of God's church. So ask God for that person who you think doesn't like you or thinks you don't love them. You should be praying, Christian. God, give me an opportunity to meet their need. Show me some need that they have that I can partake in and help meet it. I want to restore, build, create this relationship that will build unity. I'm tired of the way that there's been division. I don't want there to be this this hangnail in God's church that's constantly hurting whenever it gets rubbed. It doesn't bring glory to Christ. God, help me to be a part of meeting that need, building that relationship. Well, friends, giving to others, it creates and it builds relationships. It creates communion. And let this bring greater clarity to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. See, God gave to make a relationship with Him possible. Have you received what He's given Have you received His Son whom He gave to make a relationship with you possible? Jesus came to live the righteous life you couldn't. He died the death you deserved. He made it clear that through your faith in Him and through what He did, you can have a relationship with God. And if you desire true forgiveness, if you desire true joy, then come to God through Christ today. Christian, are you honoring God with how you are giving. Are you using your resources to advance God's work in the world, to help God's people to promote unity in His church amongst believers? If you are, may you continue to abound in this good work and not grow weary. And if you are not, ask God to help you to start today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for instructing us in Your ways. You are a giver and you are generous beyond understanding. And you are not stingy at all in your giving. You did not withhold even your son. The relationship that you desired restored, you restored it through giving. Oh, help us to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen.